week uh, outside, we have been highlighting a ministry of our church. Um, we did a couple of weeks of baptisms. First week, I don't know what we did, but this week, we're, do, we're highlighting the Samaritan team ministry and all that they do. Uh, Susan Kenosha, just so you know, uh, has been leading that ministry for a very long time. She has been incredibly faithful. Would you give her a hand and thank her for us if she's here? Uh, Susan has led that, that ministry with skill and wisdom. She's taking a step back um, uh, just to rest from that ministry. Uh, but right now, we're going to actually have uh, Tom Hammond, who is going to help us to understand that ministry a little bit better. Tom, uh, tell us what ministry you personally are involved in, and what's, what's you and Cinda, what's the main thing that so you, you guys do? I'm primarily in the Mercy team. Yeah. So uh, the Mercy team is primarily financial assistance. Yeah. what we do. Talk right into that mic there. Oh, Okay. Mercy team, so primarily financial assistance is what we assist in. And then with the Samaritan team, what does the Samaritan team do? Okay, so so the Samaritan team basically has Helping Hands Ministry, which is headed up by Kirby, and that is uh, physical needs, so helping people move, uh, minor repairs around the home, things like that. And then the Mercy team provides financial assistance for those in need um, outside the body as well as within the body. Right, right. And how do you guys allocate those resources? How okay, so the, the resources, uh, basically when somebody contacts the church and says they have a need of some sort, uh, the church contacts the whoever's on call for the week. We rotate through and take turns. And then we review the request, the urgency, the need. That's important. We have to understand how urgent is it. Sometimes we have to act quickly. Sometimes we have time to delay. So we go into a database that we maintain it's a secure database, private, and then we review and ask some basic questions like, how many dependents, what's the need, how can we be of assistance to you, how fast do you need it, and then we provide direct aid in the form of uh, food, fuel, groceries, uh, temporary safe haven, such as setting them up a motel room, or as Kirby does, moving, uh, helping provide minor repairs, things like that. Yeah, yeah, great. If someone in the congregation knew of someone in need, what would be the best way they could contact the team? So if you need, if you know of somebody who needs something that we can help with, the best way is to go through the church office. Uh, call the church, give them a brief description of what you need. They'll contact us, and then we'll return the call to you. If it's somebody we're not aware of outside of the body, frequently we'll block our phone numbers just to provide security for ourselves. And then we'll review the need with the individual, start to gather information. And then uh, can you share a couple of stories, a story or two of people that we've helped and, and ways in which this ministry and the money that we collect for it has really blessed someone's life? So basically the last Sunday of every month, Part of the, you'll see it in the Bolton, you'll see it up on the uh, wall as well, talking about collecting for the Mercy Fund. So one of the, I got two different stories. One was a family with large medical bills that had gone into collections. Um, please, if you have a problem, let us know before it goes to collections so we can get involved. Um, hospital, doctor, anesthesiologist were all seeking payment through a collections agency. And the collections agency was being very uh, forceful at trying to collect. Uh, once we got involved in it, 
we were able to negotiate with a collections agency for reduced payment with a guarantee that we would pay in cash the sum that we agreed to. So it eliminated a lot of the stress for the family, greatly reduced the sum that had to be paid out, and we were able to make that payment through the Mercy Fund. Another story is just this past winter, we had a family in need. They lost one of their primary sources of heat in the home, and they were using space heaters to try to keep the rooms warm. When it got brought to our attention, we asked how can we help while well, the part was on back order. They couldn't get the, the heating source fixed any faster, but they were using uh, basically bed sheets for drapes, weren't insulating the windows at all. So we made arrangements, we purchased drapes and helped assist in putting the drapes up and greatly reduced the heat loss from the home. Saved them significantly in bills and was able to keep the home much warmer. Wonderful. Hey guys, let's pray for this ministry. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be a blessing as a congregation to people who are in need. We believe that is the heart of the gospel. We believe that is your heart for the church. And we pray for this ministry. We pray for every volunteer who serves in it, that you would encourage them and that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would help us to be responsive, help us as a church uh, to see those needs as they come along and, and be quick to respond uh, and to do that well in a way that honors you. And Lord God, we thank you for our dear sister Susan. We pray for her, pray for her rest, pray for her strengthening, pray for her encouragement. And we thank you so much for all these volunteers who make this ministry happen and turn these dollars into action. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Give another hand there. Well, I decided today it would be appropriate to preach from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what is written in the law? Jesus asked him, How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who then is my neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit's anointing will be on the preaching of the word, and that you would stir us and change us down in our bones let this word challenge us and bring us uh, to a decision that pleases you and brings a smile to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at this probably most famous parable that Jesus gives us here in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even people in secular culture use the phrase Good Samaritan uh, to refer to a person who does good. This is going to be Jesus' answer to this particular challenge. And I thought it would be appropriate today to kind of look at the story and draw some principles and keys out of it to help us as we serve the Lord. One of the most powerful stories of selfless giving and mercy is the story of Oscar Schindler in World War II. Schindler was an industrialist and a failed businessman who had become adept at conning his way into certain industries and then failing gloriously. He relocated to Germany, and he started a factory there, and he finally found some manufacturing success, 
And then he joined the Nazi party in 1939. He lived an opulent, just a lavish lifestyle, just blowing his money on booze, women, and song. But he also became an unlikely rescuer for Jews, saving them from the prison camps of Auschwitz. And when he began uh, to see the Nazis' mistreatment of Jews, he was moved with compassion and he concocted a plan and he and a man named Yitzhak Stern made the now famous Schindler's List. And on that list, they, they came up with a thousand names. Actually, it was 1,200 names of people that they wanted to save from these internment camps. And so he bribed, tricked, and bluffed his way into saving just about a thousand Jews from Auschwitz, the horrors of it. And uh, his uh, alleged ammunition factory produced just one wagon load of usable bullets. And uh, he died penniless and unknown. He was exiled from Germany, and when he came back, he died all by himself with no money at all. In 1993, his wife and, and other survivors lobbied to erect a monument in his honor titled Righteous Among the Nations. And he was posthumously awarded with the rare honor of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council Medal of Remembrance. And then Steven Spielberg made him famous in the 1993 movie Schindler's List. And if you haven't seen that, I encourage you to watch it. We rarely look more like God than we, when we are expressing his compassion and his mercy to the people who need it most. I'll say it again. We rarely look more like God. We rarely look more like Jesus than when we are expressing God's love and his compassion to those who need it most. And here's what the religious leader who comes up and challenges Jesus is going to learn in this story today. That our professed love for an unseen God is directly measured by our tangible service to our fellow man. The love and mercy we show our fellow man is often a key indicator of the actual quality of our professed devotion to our Lord. And the story begins with a, a lawyer's trick question in verse 25, a lawyer. Now that word lawyer just means a legal expert. Now in this culture, a legal expert was a person who was an authority figure uh, among the Jews. They would regularly teach or interpret the Torah or interpret the prophets in synagogue. And so as a lawyer, as a legal expert, he also serves as a, a, um, a judge. So he serves also as a judge adjudicating cases that are brought before him in the synagogue. And so this legal expert takes an aggressive posture with Jesus. The legal expert is likely conspicuous. He is wearing a sudarim or a traditional head turban that is notable by all. He's wearing a talit, which is a Jewish prayer scarf. He's wearing a richly ornamented outer tunic with very long tzitzit, or embroidered blue tassels, all of which signify outwardly his inward devotion to God and his sanctification. And not only is he conspicuous because of his appearance, everyone knows that when this guy comes in the room or when this guy comes into your environment, in whatever room or environment he enters, he is the expert. If you have a question about interpretation on matters of the law or the prophets or the Psalms, you ask him. He's the expert. And so now he stands and faces Jesus, which is an aggressive posture, one rabbi to another. And he intentionally challenges the master. 
He wants to challenge him and show everybody that this country Jew from Nazareth is really a fraud. He's really an illiterate yokel peasant from Nazareth. He then asked the most important question a Jew could ask. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the question is not exactly what you might think. In the Jewish worldview, eternal life was not dying and going to heaven. That's what you and I usually think. But what they thought was the kingdom of heaven coming come to earth. God's kingdom suddenly breaking into the world and bringing the resurrection and the new life that they expected God to bring them. For sure, they believed they would go to heaven when they died. But their expectation of eternal life is that they would be resurrected in God's new kingdom when it comes. And this is the question he's asking. How can I secure my place? How can I ensure that I am going to receive eternal life, resurrection life, when God's kingdom suddenly breaks into the world and he brings his world-writing salvation? And this theology is most assuredly echoed in Jesus' model prayer, "Our, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus taught his Jewish disciples to pray, and this is the way Jews prayed. And so his question is about his eternal inheritance as a son of Abraham, trusting in his election in Abraham, and also trusting in his personal righteousness according to Moses' law. What do I need to do to make it in? And Jesus gives him a counter question. Well, what is written in Moses' law? Jesus asks him, how do you read it? Now, this question is not just a trick. This is Jesus showing him honor. For one rabbi to ask another rabbi, how do you read the text, is a show of honor. He could have just said, here's the answer. But he doesn't do that, and he's not trying to trick him. He also is not just trying to evade or uh, sort of a get out of a confrontation. You can answer a question with a question, and you can do it to trick a person, or you can do it to evade confrontation. Jesus is not doing either one of these. He's never shy of confrontation, and he's not really trying to make a fool out of this guy. He really wants to teach him the answer. He really wants to lead him inescapably to the truth that this man must see. And so he asked the question, how do you see it, sir? How do you see it, pastor? Tell me how you read the text. And the man says this in verse 27, the legal expert answered. He said, love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with your soul, with your strength and your mind. And he includes Leviticus 19, which most rabbis don't. But he's been eavesdropping on Jesus's teaching. And Jesus does include both the greatest commandment and the second is like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. He told him, do this and you shall have life. Now, what is the problem here? Doesn't the man already know this? Doesn't the lawyer already know this? Of course he knows this, but what does he also know? He also knows that there are lots of people he doesn't love. And so he asks another question. He knows he cannot meet the standard. And a clarifying question, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who then is my neighbor? 
Now understand, he wants to justify himself. He is a judge in the synagogue court. So the synagogue, synagogue would do double duty. It had lots of functions. One would be as a meeting house for worship meetings on the Sabbath, and the other would be as a courtroom for cases uh, brought before a legal expert. And so he is actually a judge. He's not just an attorney or a lawyer. He's a judge. And so when cases are brought before him, he hears the case and here's what he does. He either declares you justified or not justified. And now what does he want to do? He wants to justify himself. He wants to justify himself before Jesus. Who then is my neighbor? His question reveals that he's looking for a loophole to the law. He's clearly looking for a loophole that will allow him to disassociate either with notorious sinners or people who are less than devout or less devout than himself. So his clarifying question and his announcement to everyone who can hear him, if you're not in my group, I don't have to love you. He wants to limit the scope of his social obligation to love people. And let me tell you, there are lots of people this guy doesn't love. The people from the East, Babylonians, Assyrians, they are worse than Greco-Romans for sure. They practice the occult. They practice the magical arts. They open themselves up through drug use to demons, demonology, right? So that's how they worship, and their lives are full of all kinds of immoralities. Surely those people from the Far East are not my neighbors. And surely the Greeks and the Romans aren't. They, they worship false gods, and they practice all kinds of crazy immorality. What about the people far north of Israel? The Galileans. Did you know in rabbinic literature, the word Galilean is synonymous with tax collector or sinner? Surely the Galileans aren't my neighbors. What about the Sadducees or the priestly class in southern Jerusalem? The Pharisees and the scribes found themselves in constant, constant shouting matches over doctrinal issues like the existence of the supernatural realm, the existence of angels or demons, or which books belong in the Bible. They were constantly at odds and locking horns about these issues. Maybe the Sadducees and the priests aren't my neighbors either. And what about those Samaritans? Geographically, they're literally their neighbors. They're in the community right next to Judea. And surely he doesn't mean the Samaritans, the half-breeds who intermarried with all of those people of the land. No way. They've taken our Bible and they've distorted our doctrines, and then they're trying to say that, that the holy place is not Jerusalem, it's not the temple, it's Mount Gerizim. Surely the Samaritans are not my neighbors. The Jews and Samaritans were political and religious rivals, and they avoided each other like the plague. The Samaritans were regularly cursed in the Jews' 18 benedictions in the synagogue prayer in their worship meetings. They were denounced by the rabbis as unworthy of resurrection and everlasting life. Here's a line from one of their prayers. Adonai, Lord, please turn your face and do not remember the Samaritans at the resurrection. They literally prayed that these people would not be saved. So this man likely had a whole list of people who weren't included in his group of neighbors that he had to love. And the legalist wants to limit the scope of his social obligation to love his neighbor because if he does that, then perhaps he can meet the standard. Perhaps he can love God and love his neighbor and live. He knows what he needs. Number four, 
And then Jesus gives him a scandalous analogy. This parable is hilarious. He says in verse 30, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him and beat him and fled, leaving this man half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road and when he saw him, he just passed on the other side of the road. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the priest and the Levite are religious rivals to the legal expert. He's not in their party. He doesn't belong in their political party. So they are rivals to him. And right now, you know what this guy is thinking? Yeah, get him, Jesus. And he also expects right after Jesus says, the priest and the Levite wouldn't dare touch this guy for fear that the, this dead body, this presumed dead body would defile them. It's right here in the story where they expect Jesus to now insert the real hero, the legal expert. And Jesus doesn't do it. Instead, look at the rest, verse 33. But a Samaritan, what? On his journey came to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, the word in Greek for compassion is the word supatheo. It means to have sympathy. It means to show intense sympathy for another. And he went over to him and he bandaged his, bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And then Jesus asked the jurist, he asked him a question that he cannot deny. He can't deny the truth of it. Verse 36, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor? That is, obey Leviticus 19 to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Well, I guess the one who showed mercy to him. Yeah, you bet. So that's what Moses meant. That's what Jesus says. Go and do likewise, because that's what Moses meant when he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the person who doesn't look like you, who doesn't think like you, who doesn't belong in your group. Love them like you love yourself. And so there are several takeaways I think we have from, from the passage today I'd like to highlight. It's a principle, a key, and some action. A principle, the key, and action. The principle is very simply this. Our love for the unseen God is directly measured by the extent to which we love people who are made in his image. Uh, the Apostle John says this. The Apostle John says, how can you claim to love a God whom you've never seen, and yet you despise or you reject the person that you do see? who is made in his image. You can't do that. So if we really want to do a self-diagnostic on our love and devotion to God, the parable causes us to rightly face our own prejudices. It causes us to rightly face our own walls and our own barriers that we've erected between people and God and between people and us. And it helps us to di diagnose our devotion to God. All we have to do is Look at how we treat people that we think are the furthest from him, like the Samaritans. Look at how we treat the people who are hurting and languishing and helpless. The principle is our love for God is directly proportional to how we love the people made in his image who are the farthest from us in our group. And the key to that is loving God. 
Our love for God produces in us a love for others. This is the key. So the key to loving people more is actually to love God more because this is the work of the Holy Spirit that is poured into our hearts, Paul says in Romans. He says, this is the work of the Spirit that is poured into our hearts. It's the love of God. When the Holy Spirit fills us and when we are, our eyes are enlarged for God, we love other people because that's the work the Spirit does in us. You show me a person who is a loveless, fault-finding, unmerciful Christian, and I'll show you someone who is a false believer. You show me a terminally cranky person who just doesn't love anybody that's not in their group, and I'll show you a person, regardless of their confession, regardless of what they claim, they do not know God. Because to know God and to be filled with the Spirit of God is to be filled with a spirit of compassion and sympathy and love for the people who are hurting the most. Conversely, you show me a person who loves people and makes the good confession in Christ, and I'll show you a person who really has been saved. So what's the action? Several actions I think we need to take. The first one is this. Like the Good Samaritan, we must be quick and responsive, recognizing opportunities to show God's mercy to hurting people. And that, my friends, is the instinct of the gospel. That is the essential impulse of the gospel. We must be quick. Notice how the Good Samaritan, when he sees him, he doesn't just look at him. He doesn't just cross the road. He goes to him to inspect whether or not he's still alive. He's not worried about this person contaminating him religiously. He just wants to help. And I think the impulse of the gospel, the impulse of Jesus, his heart, is for us to be on the lookout, to have our radar on, looking for opportunities to serve people in Jesus' name, to show them the mercy and the compassion of the gospel. Why is this? Because the second point here is that often we must show others the love of the gospel before earning the right to tell them the gospel. We must show people the love and the compassion of the gospel oftentimes so that we can earn the right to tell them the gospel. So that we can earn the right to tell them the gospel. Uh, There's an old saying, you may have heard it, I'm sure you would agree, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much gospel you know until they can see the gospel working out in our lives, expressing itself as love and mercy, looking just like Jesus. Then lastly here, the last action point is loving our neighbor is costly and involves sacrificial giving. The Samaritan's act of mercy was costly. It cost him something. It cost him his time. It cost him probably his wife's absolute heartache because his wife didn't know where he was. (laughs) He probably didn't make it home on time. And he had to leave his credit card and say, whatever is needed here, just put it on my tab, Right? And oftentimes, ministering to people outside of our group means that it's going to cost us something. That's the instinct. That's the impulse of the gospel. And I I just want to give you one more example of the Mercy team being empowered uh, and enabled by this congregation to meet needs, the Idaho Falls Rescue Mission. You guys know about the Idaho Falls Rescue Mission, right? For those of you who knew the area, basically what they do is they meet needs that as a church, we, we don't directly meet. And so they provide meals, they, they provide shelter, limited shelter, and they provide recovery for people who are down and outers, people who have just washed out of life. 
and are struggling uh, mightily with addiction and other matters. And so uh, this last couple of months, we were able from the Mercy Fund to, to donate $15,000 that you gave to the Mercy Fund to help them do their ministry. And it's not that we're just trying to outsource that. It's that we really want to be a resourcing church. That's our vision as a church, as a regional church right here in Idaho Falls. We want to resource ministries that are helping people and expressing not only the gospel of God, but the mercy of the gospel. And so this sermon today is really a thank you note from my heart and from Jesus to yours. To say thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your heart to serve and to give and to make a difference for the gospel, because you do. I want to end by saying, uh, I wonder if uh, Oscar Schindler, when he died alone, penniless, I wonder if he thought that no one would ever know his story. I wonder if he thought about God. I wonder if he thought about his own salvation. But he had no idea when he died that the Jews, what they would do that they would erect this monument in Israel to honor him. He had no idea that Steven Spielberg would make a movie of his life that's been seen by millions and millions of people, an award-winning movie, so people could see his, his grace and his compassion firsthand. And in the same way, folks, you and I will never know what small gifts can do in the light of eternity. We will not know until we are with Christ and his kingdom comes or we, are, or we go to his kingdom. We will not know what small acts of generosity, the, the ripple effects of those acts of generosity can do until we are in eternity. Uh, I think of just one act of kindness by the local pastor of Faith Baptist Church when I was a kid. He just decided instead of going to get a hamburger that day, he would just stop by our house and and visit and introduce himself to my mom. And my mom got radically saved, and I promise you, Sharon is the most radically saved person you have ever met. She's hilarious, she's a blast. But in that moment, she gave her life to Jesus. She confessed her sins and her belief in the cross and Jesus' resurrection to save her for eternity. And my life has never been the same because of one guy who decided to turn left instead of turn right that day. You never know. And so will you just pray and, and be encouraged today, but also pray, God, help me to keep my radar on. Help me to see opportunities that I can respond to and to meet those needs. Will you pray about that? Let's pray together. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you today. This is absolutely gorgeous, beautiful day. We thank you for the breeze. We thank you for your grace and abundance to us. And we thank you for the opportunity to just look like Jesus because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And God, you have not called us to be consumers. You've called us to be contributors. You've not called us uh, to be an audience. You've called us to be a family. And God, uh, thank you for the opportunity to give. But Lord, we also want to ask you to continue to bring us resources to meet with those opportunities. Would you open our eyes? Give us clear radar. Help us to see those opportunities to bless someone for time and eternity in Jesus' name. Let's all say amen. amen. All right.